following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. If you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Missio, and uh, really grateful that you would spend some time with us this morning. Uh, we are in the third quarter of the book of Acts. How about that one, huh? Uh, so if you can join me in Acts chapter 20, that's where we are this morning, Acts chapter 20. Uh, if you are unfamiliar, the book of Acts is really all about the power of God being unleashed through his people called the church. And so we've seen that over now 19 chapters uh, in this book. And lately we've been tracing the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. So Paul, who was not a Christian, hated Christians, became a Christian, and then was used by God uh, to plant churches all over uh, really all over the world, the known world at that time. So Paul's preaching the gospel, he's planting churches, he's strengthening disciples. And for the sake of time, uh, because there are 38 verses in the book, uh, in the chapter, in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, uh, I want to summarize just briefly the first 16 verses, and then we're going to really look at verses 17 to 38 for the rest of our time. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is a historian, and so he's, he's not a novelist, and so he really, in the first like six verses of chapter 20, just gives us an itinerary, Paul's itinerary, as he makes his way uh, through the ancient world. Um, Robbie, if you want to pop that map up real quick, here's what we see. Uh, Paul leaves the city of Ephesus. That was chapter 19. If you remember, he kind of got run out of town. There was a big riot. It was awesome. Uh, but he, he leaves Ephesus, and what he's going to do is he's going to make his way back through Macedonia, which is where he had ministered previously. And he's got three goals there as he goes through the region of Macedonia. Number one, he is collecting money because the church in Jerusalem, which was really home base, right, for all of Christian, the Christian movement, uh, the church of Jerusalem has, had come under some intense persecution and suffering and hardship. And so Paul is visiting all those other churches and he's taking up a collection to help bless the churches, uh, in the church in Jerusalem there. So he's doing that. He's also encouraging the believers. Uh, I really think he learned this from Barnabas. Barnabas means, he, Barnabas was his companion on his first missionary journey and Barnabas means son of encouragement. And uh, I think Paul learned how to encourage people from Barnabas. And so as he makes his way back through these towns and cities and churches, he's encouraging the believers. That happens, we see that mentioned three times uh, in the early verses of Acts 20 that he's encouraging the believers. But the other thing that he's doing is he's writing letters. So by this time, this is roughly 53 to 57 AD, he has already written a letter to the church at Galatia. Uh, he's already written letters to uh, Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians. But during this journey, he's going to write letters to the church at Corinth. They're going through some hard things. Uh, he catches wind of it, and he writes them two letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, probably three, but uh, that one's not recorded in Scripture. But like in 1st Corinthians, he says, in my previous letter, and you're like, what? We don't have that one. Um, he writes letters to the church at Corinth, and then he visits them. And then at the end of this journey, he'll actually write a letter to the church at Rome, uh, which he's never visited, but he wants to, and he'll end up making his way to Rome eventually. Uh, and so we get the book of Romans. And it's really important to understand that there's some historical context here, right? These aren't just books that are in our Bible. They were letters written by Paul on this journey as he was making his way uh, to those various towns and cities. And so he's writing letters and encouraging believers and addressing issues and such. Now, uh, when he gets to Corinth, what he wants to do is take a ship all the way back to Jerusalem, basically. He's going to go back to Antioch and then visit Jerusalem. Uh, but there's a threat from the Jews, an unknown threat, but he thinks his life is at stake. And so the reason why you see a light green line and a dark green line on that map is rather than take a boat back to Antioch, he actually makes a reverse course and he makes his way all the way back through these towns and cities one more time. <laughs> it's like uh, Brett Favre retirement. Nope, not really, coming back. And so he's like, he, he says goodbye and then he's like, psych, Goodbye one more time. And he makes his way back through these uh, various churches until he lands at Troas. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 18, uh, Troas is where Paul has the vision of the man from Macedonia that's like, hey, come over to us. And, uh, and so he goes back and he meets with the church at Troas, okay? Here's what happens at Troas. He's going to say goodbye to these believers. And what's he going to do? He's going to preach. And uh, according to Acts chapter 20, he preaches for a long time, okay? Uh, side note. My 11-year-old son was sitting here uh, uh, last Sunday, and uh, 
I might have gone a little long in the, in the service last week. And so he puts his head, like leans his head on my shoulder. He's like, you tired, buddy? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, maybe you shouldn't stay up so late. And he said, maybe you preach too long. <laughs> so I grounded him right there on the spot. No, he's got the sense of humor of his mother. But anyway, uh, we, <laughs> Paul preaches to midnight and he's going on and going on, and he's got a lot to say, right? This is his last time he's going to be with the, uh, with the believers there in Troas. And there's a young man named Eutychus. He's probably a teenager. He's propping himself up against a window, trying to stay awake. It's an upper room. There's oil lamps, and so it's probably carbon monoxide. And brother falls asleep and falls out the window to his death, three stories down. Boom, okay? Paul's like, oh, again? No, he doesn't say that. But he, he stops preaching, goes down, brings this young man back to life, and then he keeps preaching. <laughs> he, he's like, I got stuff to finish. And so he continues to preach well into the morning before he says goodbye to the believers at Troas, gets on a boat, kind of island hops. He's on the Jimmy Buffett tour all the way down to this city called Miletus. You see there below Ephesus. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning is Paul in the city of Miletus. He calls to the elders, the leaders of the church at Ephesus to come to him because he doesn't want to go back to Ephesus because it was kind of a rough go there the first time. And he's got some final things he needs to say to these elders uh, from the church at Ephesus. So um, keep in mind as we read through this, um, someone's last words. Now, Paul's not going to die immediately, but this are his, these are his last words to the church at Ephesus. Someone's last words are important, right? Like you don't have time to be trivial, uh, you've got to get right to the point and say what's most important uh, in that moment. And so Paul has some really important stuff to say to the church at Ephesus, to the elders of the church at Ephesus this morning. And so we're going to pick up the text in verse 17 uh, of Acts chapter 20. And so if you have a Bible, you can follow me there. Uh, it'll also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But I would really encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to pick up one of the paperback ones that's in the seat back, and uh, you can follow along. Let me do this because it's a lot of verses. Uh, like I did last week, I prefer to read the whole text and then pray. <coughs> Excuse me, but it's a lot of verses. <clears throat> so let me pray now, and then, I'll, and then uh, I'll read a chunk at a time, and we'll kind of walk through it. Does that sound good? All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered as your people. Uh, thank you that we are able to sing these great hymns of the faith uh, to you and to one another as we remind ourselves of, of what is true about you, what is true about the cross, what is true about our identity uh, in Christ. And so I uh, thank you for these brothers and sisters who are gathered this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we um, open your word, as we look at Acts chapter 20, uh, that by your spirit, through your word, you would minister to each of us right where we are, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would uh, rebuke us if necessary, that you would bring comfort and, and uh, allow us to hear clearly from the Lord this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd fill me and empower me once again to rightly divide this word so that your people hear from you and not from me. And I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. All right, join me in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And here's what it says. Now, from Miletus, <clears throat> he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we'll stop there. Now, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. We're looking here in these first set of verses at Paul's example, the example that Paul set for the believers. So these elders from Ephesus, they come to him, they meet with him at Miletus, and, um, and this is a somber meeting because Paul knows it's his last time that he will be seeing face-to-face -face, uh, these, these elders, these believers in Ephesus. And he says to them, guys, you know me. Uh, he spent three years in Ephesus which was far longer than he spent anywhere else in all of his missionary journeys. And we know that he wasn't just a mission machine. You know, sometimes, I, I don't know if you get this, like when you read the Bible, you read the, the New Testament, you see the letters of Paul, you think, man, this guy's just a machine. Like he's 
he's preaching the gospel, he's planting churches, he's enduring hardship, and he doesn't really seem human. He's like superhuman, like superhero, you know? But that's not true. Because we know, for instance, from his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, he says, you know, we, we desire to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very selves. Paul was human, and he ministered out of his humanity, out of his vulnerability, just like Jesus. And so he says, I, I came to you with all humility, meaning I came in low. I didn't come demanding stuff from you. I didn't come in pride and in arrogance saying, you guys are idiots and need to believe in me. He says, I, I came low. I came like Jesus, gentle and lowly. I, I counted others. You know this. You saw this in me, that, you, that I counted others um, as more important than myself. So in other words, the Ephesians... They not only heard his words, but they got to see his character over that three years. He came with all humility. He says he, he came with tears, with trials that, that were um, administered to him by the Jews. In other words, he suffered. And you know that, I mean, Paul suffered a lot. Um, in fact, I've read this to you before, but in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, so the, the second letter that he rent, wrote to the Corinthian church, um, let me find it here. Should have bookmarked it, and I didn't. Second Corinthians chapter 11, we've, we've looked at this um, before, but I just need you to hear. Now, when he's writing this letter, again, this is the same time period that we're talking about. As he's ministering to all these churches throughout the book of Acts, he's writing. At some point, he will write the, the letter to the Corinthian church, the second letter, and this is what he says to them. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, so he's like, I'll stop, but there's more. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered. Right? He endured a lot of pain. But he says, but I also did not shrink back from declaring to you everything that was profitable. In other words, he had boldness. He had courage. He, he said hard things that needed to be said because who else was going to say them? And I love this about Paul because you, you, you often do not see humility and boldness go together, do you? I, I bet if we did a survey, particularly of the married couples in the room, and we said, are you both bold and humble? One of you is humble and one of you is bold. <laughs> right? And that's why you have fights. <laughs> Because one of you says what needs to be said, but you don't say it in a humble way, and another one of you is very gentle and humble, but you don't say what needs to be said. Some of you just got marriage counseling right now. You're like, oh, that's the problem. It's one of the problems. So we, so, but we see this in Jesus, right? We, we, Jesus is the ultimate display of both lowness, lowliness, gentleness, humbleness, and courage, and boldness. No one could ever accuse Jesus of being unloving or unkind, and yet he would say very sharp, very biting things, very pointed things to people, calling them to repentance, calling them to faith, calling them to believe in the gospel, and yet showing care and, and love for them. We, we need that. He says, I was teaching you both publicly and privately about repentance and faith in Christ. Now remember, at this time, besides a few of the letters that he's already written, we only have the Old Testament. And so he's going, hey, I proclaim to you the Bible. I preached the gospel to you from this Bible, from the Old Testament. I showed you how all of this connects to Jesus and what your proper response to Jesus ought to be. Repentance, turning away from sin and self, and faith in Christ. He says, I taught that both in the synagogues, like he says, publicly and house to house. In the synagogues, in the hall of Tyrannus, if you remember Acts chapter 19, and from home to home. Which tells me 
This is not just an eight to five day job for Paul. He's not a hireling, he's a shepherd. He cares deeply about these people. And so like Jesus, he will publicly declare the truths of God and then privately he'll go meet people around the dinner table and continue to help them understand and unpack the truths of the scripture. He'll continue to point them to Jesus. He'll continue to shepherd and care for their souls. It's a beautiful example. And that's just the point. Paul was faithful to set an example for the church. In fact, in another scripture, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He sets himself up and says, hey, I want to be an example for you, so you follow me as I follow Christ. And I need you to know this. Paul did not set an example for the church because he was a pastor. He did not set an example for the church because he was a missionary. He did not set an example for the church because he was an evangelist. You know why he set an example? Because he was a Christian. He was keenly aware of who he was apart from Christ and the impact that Jesus had made on his life. He, that brought him low because he knew how prideful and arrogant he was before. He he knew how much, apart from Christ, he hated other people, like advocating for their death and their beating and their arrest. And that allowed him, that, that, that change in him made him compassionate and tender towards people. He knew that everything that happened in his life was sifted through the sovereign and loving hand of God. And so that allowed him, as we'll see in a, in a later point, to endure with a sustaining joy anything. And so he set an example for the believers at Ephesus. Later in 1 Timothy, so if you don't know this, Timothy, who is like a protege of Paul, he actually becomes the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And then later on, uh, a man named John also becomes the pastor of Ephesus. But in, a, in two letters that he writes to Timothy to encourage him, uh, in, in 1 Timothy, he, he tells Timothy, who's a young man, um, don't let them look down upon you because of your youth, but set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity for the believers. So this tells me, because Timothy was a protege who became a pastor, but he was just a Christian like us, that this has application for all of us. So let me ask you, what kind of example are you setting? What kind of example are we setting? What kind of example are we setting in our homes? With our roommates or our spouses or our significant others, with our, um, with our children? What kind of example are we setting in the workplace among coworkers who may not be believers in Jesus and the only representation of Christ that they're seeing is us at work? What kind of example are we setting among our friends? Do, do our friends even know that we belong to Jesus? Do they see anything of the beauty of Christ in us, the compassion, the tenderness, the courage, the tenacity of Jesus? Do they see any of that in us? Because here's what happens. So often, the gaps in our character undermine our confession, right? And like we are called to confess with our lives and through our mouths that Christ is Lord and yet, because of gaps in our character, it undermines our confession. And you know what a lot of us do? We stop confessing. <laughs> it's like the story I heard about this pastor who had a Christian fish. You know that, like, it's a bump, uh, little magnet thing or whatever you stick on your car. And um, he zoomed by a church member, and he had that Christian sticker. And, and, and church member said, hey, I saw you pass me. You were speeding. And he said, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. And so he took the Christian fish off his car. <laughs> I'm not going to change my behavior I'm going to change my representation. How many of us do that? We all recognize, I think we all feel gaps in between who we are and who God calls us to be. The question is, what do we do with that gap? What do we do with that gap? When we know who we are in this moment, we know who we're called to be, and we feel that gap, what do we do? The answer is not, try harder. The answer is not, do better. The answer is not, well, I should, I have to, I ought to, whatever. If you belong to Jesus, the only answer 
is that we cry out to God for help. We say, I need you, God, to do in me what I can't do in myself. I need you to change my heart. I need you to change my attitude. I need you to change my character from the inside out because there's no way that I can do this on my own. And the Lord might give you some steps. He might give you some work to do. But your, your job primarily is not to work harder to change yourself. It's to rely on Christ who will change you. So when you feel that gap between who you are and who you're called to be, pray, seek the Lord, ask him. Some of you are painfully aware of the gaps in your own character. And some of you are totally unaware of the gaps, but everyone else around you is painfully aware. So ask the Lord to make it clear, to reveal to you where those gaps are, and to do the work in you that only he can do, to change you from the inside out. And, and let me ask, let me, let me just affirm to you that when you ask him, he is able and he is willing to help you and to grow you out of his matchless, limitless, all-sufficiency. He will do it if you ask. Now, you guys still with me so far? Okay. Let's look at verse 22. So Paul, again, as addressing these elders, says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. All right, we'll stop there. For note takers, my next point is uh, Paul's endurance. We're looking at Paul's endurance here. Now, one of the ways we display the beauty and the glory of Christ and his gospel is through our example, okay? But another way that we display the beauty and glory of Christ and his gospel is through our endurance, now, as I mentioned, Paul suffered quite a bit in his life, and we could go to other places where we see that uh, besides 2 Corinthians 11. But now, as Paul is saying goodbye to these churches, he is approaching an unknown future. He really doesn't know for sure what exactly is going to happen to him. However, he says that he's, he's confident that the Spirit is leading him and that he knows pain and suffering is going to await him. It's really interesting he says, in every city. So as he's making this tour, as he's going back to all the churches, apparently what's happening is there are believers who get impressions from the Spirit, and they pull them aside, and they go, hey, Paul, um, so I was praying, and I just feel like if you go back to Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for you. And Paul goes, yeah, I know. See ya. Right? And then he goes to another town. They go, hey, Paul, um, you know, I was worshiping the Lord, and I just there's this impression that I got from the Spirit that if you go to Jerusalem, uh, they're going to hurt you. They might even kill you. And he goes, yeah, the Spirit told me that too. Got to go. And, he take, and he's like, he's, and you're like, why would you do that? In fact, next week, we'll see in Acts chapter 21, uh, this guy Agabus, who actually sort of like, he's kind of dramatic, and he like takes a belt and wraps it around. He's like, this is what's going to happen to you. And Paul's like, yeah, I know. Go into Jerusalem, right? Which is crazy. You're like, why would he do that? Knowing pain awaits him, knowing suffering awaits him, knowing potentially death awaits him. Did he mishear? Uh, is the spirit like trying to warn him and he's just so dull he's not paying attention? And I would say no, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's confident that the Lord is leading him in that direction. So here, here's why we kind of think that way. Some of us have a very American but not very Christian worldview of pain and suffering. Here's what I mean. We think that hardship and pain mean we're doing it wrong. We think that hardship and pain and suffering can't be God's will. And so if we, if we're, if we make a decision and we head somewhere that leads to pain and hardship and suffering, that must not be what God wants for us, and we want to backtrack and get out of it. And the problem with that is your Bible. B because... Go to the story of Joseph. 
who was sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused, ends up in jail. And yet over and over again in the text, the Bible says God was with Joseph. And you're like, oh man, if that's what life is like, if God's with you. But then what happens? When he becomes second in charge of all Egypt and his brothers come to him, spoiler alert, he says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And what happened was, Joseph understood there was a larger story being told that wasn't just about him, but was actually about the people of God. You think about the Israelites who were brought into Egypt because of famine. And they multiply and they grow there so much that they become a threat to Pharaoh. And he enslaves them for 400 years. And then he delivers them. But it doesn't go that great because that entire generation dies in the wilderness. And yet, God was with them. God drew them out. God delivered them. And his ultimate purpose of giving them an inheritance was fulfilled with the next generation. You think about my goodness, Moses, right? He's in the wilderness. He has to put up with all these people. And he doesn't even get to see the promised land. How about the story of Jesus? Did Jesus think that suffering was not God's will? Now, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way to do this but the cross, let's do that. Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And 1 Peter will remind us that Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to bring us to God. So his whole mission was one of suffering. That's why we call him the suffering servant, referencing Isaiah 53. Okay? So, so hear me clearly. Sin often does bring pain. And so it is incumbent upon every one of us who claims the name of Jesus to keep short accounts with the Lord and to understand, is there something in me that I haven't that, I, that I'm doing, that I'm thinking, patterns of thought, behavior, action, that are causing pain to other people that I'm in relationship with that I need to repent of. But also, and, and I, I have to be as clear as I can, so all, all eyes right here, please. Some of you are enduring tremendous pain and suffering right now, and you are exactly where the loving and sovereign hand of God wants you to be exact precisely where he wants you to be for his glory and ultimately for your good. And I know it doesn't feel like that right now. It feels like you're abandoned, but that's exactly precisely where the sovereign loving hand of God has you because he's building endurance into you. There is a greater story that he is telling and one day you might get to see it or one day you might go to heaven. Now listen, Paul was not a masochist, but neither was he a superhero. He suffered. He felt pain. He actually even said things like this, I despaired even of life itself. <laughs> That's not a cheery verse. And yet he knew Jesus was with him. He knew that Jesus was for him. And he was convinced, he says this later, that even the suffering that he experienced in this life was not worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed. And so he had this deep, abiding, sustaining confidence in God, joy in Christ that buoyed him in any and every circumstance that he endured. And that kind of buoying, that kind of... Um, Buoyancy, sustaining joy, only comes through relationship with God. And oftentimes, that relationship grows deeper the more you suffer. That's why Paul in, in uh, Philippians says, I want to know Christ. And then he says, and, and experience the joy of his resurrection. But there's another line in there where he says, and identify with him in his suffering. Because he can't have resurrection joy without death. So if you're in pain, it doesn't mean God has forsaken you. It doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It means there's a bigger story that he's telling. And there's some part that your journey is playing in that. So here's my question. What is your theology of suffering? 
Because we all have one. It might not be a very good one. But what's your, what's your theology of suffering? Do you understand? Because look, pain, suffering comes for everybody, whether you believe in Jesus or not. So either you have to say, well, it just is what it is, and suck it up, buttercup, because everyone suffers, right? Sing some REM songs about everybody hurting, and then like just move on with your life. Or you understand there is something greater that God is doing, and I don't know what it is, but I have to trust him because only trusting him is going to allow me to float when, when all these waves come crashing and crashing and crashing over me. The goal of our life should not be a pain-free life. Neither should it be, neither should it be a, a long life. That's not the goal. You know what the goal is? A full life. Live to the glory of God. And that's going to include pain. And so Paul here in the text says, look, I, I, I don't count my life of value. It's not that he hated himself. He just said, ultimately, like I'm expendable. What matters is that I finish my assignment. I do what God has called me to do, which is to testify to the grace of God. And if anybody knew something about grace, it's Paul. He hated Jesus. He hated the people of God. He murdered Christians, and then he became one. He's got to know a little something about grace. In fact, of the 156 times that grace is written of in the New Testament, how many of those do you think Paul talked about? How many were penned by Paul out of 156? Answer, 101. And if you credit Paul with the book of Hebrews, it's 109. Okay? He talks about grace more than Jesus. How would that feel to outdo Jesus in something besides sin? <laughs> Paul outdid Jesus in grace, in, in speaking of grace, because he had deeply experienced the grace of God for himself. And so when he endured pain and hardship and suffering, he didn't abandon his concept of grace. He clung to it even more. Okay. You guys hanging in? Okay. Finally, and this is really one of the most important sections, but I know it came last and I'm almost out of time, so we're going to have to get through it quick. Look with me at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know Revealed to me by the Spirit, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those whom are sanctified. I covet no one's silver. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. My last point here is, is uh, what we want to look at is Paul's exhortation. His exhortation. He's exhorting the elders of this church, the leaders of this church. And it seems like the Spirit had revealed to Paul not only that he would experience pain and hardship, but that the congregations would experience pain and hardship. And so his first exhortation to those elders, to the leaders of the church, is about themselves. He says, you need to watch your life. Um, John Stott, Anglican pastor and commentator, he, he said this is really about the care and cultivation of our own souls. It's about character and habits and heart and health. I think of um, Proverbs 4, 23, um, keep your heart with all vigilance, right? for from it flow the springs of life. In a word, I think Paul's talking about holiness here. Which is why, you know, when he says, follow me as I follow Christ, there's that, there's that finish. Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, 
when I am following Christ, you should follow me. But when I'm not following Christ, don't follow me. Right? I, I want to set an example, but only to the degree that I follow Jesus. See, healthy churches need healthy shepherds. And there's a ton. I know some of you have been through a lot of pain in congregations. Many of us are aware of pain that has happened in congregations. And a lot of it could be prevented if pastors would only heed this one verse. That they would watch themselves, keep a watch on their own hearts. I heard recently, this is not rumor, this is public knowledge on the interwebs, a uh, sad story about a church in, in Chattanooga that had grown very large, up to over 2,000 people coming per week. And um, the pastor did not keep a close watch on his heart uh, and um, got himself into some relationships that he shouldn't have. And uh, rumors started to swirl among the church about this, and he kept denying them. And um, one Sunday, his entire staff resigned. Entire, they had to shut down services because they had nobody to run them. Somebody secretly got a video of him kissing some woman that wasn't his wife. And here's the saddest part. He goes on a sabbatical. He comes back into the pulpit just this last Sunday. Comes back up and he says, yeah, I made some mistakes, but I'm not perfect. And I heard heard that and I thought, you're not perfect. Have you read the Bible, bro? Of course you're not perfect. That's why you need Jesus. Don't stand up here after you do some stupid stuff and go, well, no one's perfect. Like, say, I sinned. And I'm repenting, and I ask for forgiveness. But he's trying to cover his, you know what? And the church that is, was thousands of people strong has a few dozen remaining. You think Jesus smiles at that? Jesus is grieved by that. Which is also why we need a plurality of elders which this brother did not have. It was just him leading this whole big thing. And so when he says here, keep a, keep a watch on yourselves, he's also implying there, and, and each other. So though the Spirit calls elders, we are accountable. So there are, there are five of us who are elders of this congregation, and we are accountable to each other and to you as the congregation. And listen, I'm really grateful that as the lead pastor of this church, I have four other pastors who pastor me. I need that. And you need that. Paul always established multiple elders in each single congregation. That is the biblical model. And and that's the model that we strive for and I think every church should strive for because you need mutual accountability. So he says, keep, keep watch on yourselves and the flock. Watch the flock. Shepherds are to care for the sheep, to know them, to feed them, to lead them, to protect them. This is one of the reasons that we value church membership here, okay? Just a quick little plug for church membership. We need to know who actually belongs to this flock and who are just sheep who are kind of hanging around our pen. You know what I'm saying? And listen, I'm grateful for every one of you who's, who's here and, and, and watches or attends, um, but there is a value to being covenanted to the body of Christ through church membership. And so I want to just encourage you, if you call Missio home but you're not a member, uh, please come to our class on February the 20th. We're going to talk about our church, our theology, what it means to be a member, uh, the structure of our church, what, what it means for you to live out uh, your membership in this church. This doesn't commit you to anything but come into the class. But I think if, you, if you're on the fence or you don't really know why membership's important, come and, and hear about it, okay? 4 to 6 p.m., uh, we'll have dinner afterwards for those who can hang out. But, but I, I want an opportunity to explain to you uh, the value of this. So um, he says, shepherd the flock. This is God's church. It's God's people who are, who are purchased by the blood of Christ. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice, you understand, for you to become his sheep in his fold, right? Um, John 10 reminds us that Jesus, who's the good shepherd, laid down his life. He became the lamb of, the lamb of God who, who laid down his life for the sake of his sheep. That he was led to the slaughter so that you and I could have life eternal. That he took 
the judgment of God in our place for our sins so that we could have the mercy of God. That he was cast out of the fold so that you and I could be brought in. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Jesus paid the ultimate price to bring us to himself. And so Paul warns us, he says, listen, after I leave, I think he, he, was, conf- he was given this understanding by the Spirit of God. After I leave, he says, fierce wolves are going to come in among you. He even says that these, some of these wolves will come up from within them, which tells us the greatest threat to every church is not from out there. It's from in here. These folks will speak twisted things, drawing away disciples after them. Most of the time, it's not outright heresy. It's a couple degrees off. But, you know, a couple degrees off over a long period of time leads you very, 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 very far away from Jesus. And so Paul's giving this warning. Hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. And sadly, it did. In the letters to Timothy, you can see that there were people who had come in and trying to twist doctrine and, 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 and teach different kinds of things. Uh, when John takes over uh, the, the letter of 1 John, he says, yeah, they, they went out from among us, but they weren't part of us. That there, were these, there was this contention that, that arose doctrinally, and people left, and people followed them. It split the church. And then in Revelation 2, we see uh, the really sad news of the church of Ephesus, that they had though they did many commendable things, they had walked away from the love they had at first. Now, the reality is, today, there are still wolves, and they come in all different forms. And I don't even know that it's so much people within a single congregation as much as people within the church at large. And so, Wolves show themselves through books, through podcasts, through YouTube channels. (laughs) And there are so many different competing voices. And and the sad fact about evangelicalism is that we're we're not great at discernment, number one. And number two, we don't really know our Bibles well enough to know that it's a couple degrees off. And so here's a captivating speaker, someone with a lot of charisma, someone who's giving some plausible arguments, and we start listening and we start drifting because we're impressed with this plausible argument that is leading us actually away from Jesus. That's why, and I'm I'm, I'm about to wrap up here, so just hang with me. That is why at the end of this, Paul says, I commend you to God and what? To his word, to the word of his grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And it's God through his word who is able to strengthen you, he says. Later, he says to Timothy, um, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, right? It's good for correction and reproof and training to, to, to strengthen you and equip you for every good work. He tells him in 1 Timothy 4, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word because there's coming a time where people are not gonna, they're not going to want to hear it. They're going to hear other things that make them feel better about themselves, but you need to tell them the truth. And at the end of the day, there is a truth with a capital T. There is a truth with a capital T. And you can build a life, a meaningful life, on the truth, capital T truth, of God and his word. In fact, that's the only meaningful life to build, is on the foundation of God and his word. And as you do so, here's what will happen. You will actually get to know God himself. Not just some stuff about this God up there somewhere, but you'll actually get to know the heart of the one true God. You will develop deep convictions. And God will begin to transform you into his own image, into the image of Christ. And before long, you'll see, oh, look, Um, God has made me humble like Paul was, like Jesus was. He's also made me courageous and bold like Paul, like Jesus. Because why? He's changing me into the image of Christ. So, like, how, how committed are we to the foundation of the truth of the word of God, to know God? To, to, to spend time with God so that we might be transformed by God into the image of Christ and start to, to, start to 
demonstrate this kind of humility and boldness and these convictions and this radical conviction that God is with me no matter what comes my way. And so it's with that that he bids them farewell. There's more stuff in here I just don't have time to get to, but he bids them farewell. And goodbyes are hard, right? Like people move away. Uh, Some of you might have had family members who passed and you got to be with them in their last moments and super difficult. You think about these people, you put yourself in their shoes when Paul, who has meant so much to them, to bring the gospel to them, to help them grow in faith over three years, to establish the elders apparently in the church at Ephesus, and then uh, he's saying goodbye to them and they will never see his face again this side of heaven. And so there's this painful, tearful goodbye where, where they are praying and weeping and then they walk him to the ship and they watch him sail off to an unknown future we know he will eventually die. What a life. <laughs> what, what a way to say goodbye. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. The thing that troubles them most is not the pain that's coming their way, it's the fact that their friend Paul is gone. And that's where we end. Next week, we'll see Paul go into Jerusalem, and uh, it will not go well for him. It will not go well. But what we'll see in the coming weeks is just that faithful resolve and that conviction that he is doing what God called him to do no matter how painful it gets. And some of us need to hear that. So I hope you come back next week. Uh, I got four questions I want to put on the screen for us as we wrap up our time together. Thank you for your patience with me. Um, none of you fell asleep, I think. None, no one died, so... We're doing well. You can write these down as they come. You can take a picture of the screen when they're all up, but I would encourage you to take them to lunch with you, to community group, whatever. Have some conversations with people if you, if you get a chance. First question, where do I most feel the gaps in my character and example? So again, all of us have gaps in who we are versus who we're called to be. Um, where do you feel that most? And are you bringing that to Christ? Are you bringing that to the Lord? Are you pleading with the Spirit to, to fill that gap for you? Because you, we can try to be fruitful on our own. But the way to be fruitful is not to try to be fruitful. It's to be faithful. To ask the Lord to do what only He can do in my life and to, to change my heart, my attitudes, my behaviors, the stuff that I can't do quite on my own. So where do I feel that gap most and what, and what am I doing about it, right? Second question. What sustains me through pain and hardship? Pain's coming to everyone. If you haven't experienced hardship yet, boy, will you. But without, without something to sustain you, the pain will overwhelm you. And so Christ provides a sustaining joy, and it's only through relationship with him that you can actually have a solid rock in the midst of the storms of life. Um, it doesn't mean you're immune to the storm. It means you'll live. So what sustains me through pain and hardship? Third, whose voices are shaping me most? Millions of voices out there. Voices we watch, voices we listen to, right? Voices we read. And, and I'm not just talking about spiritually, okay? This question really has to do with voices everywhere, all right? Like your, the newscast you watch or listen to, the articles you read. Um, there, there are voices that are shaping the way we view the world and everything in it. And so I would say, whose voices are shaping me? And are those voices, how, how attuned to, how in line are those voices to the voice of God? Because if those voices are telling me things that God is saying differently, then I got a problem, right? Whose voices are shaping me most? Who am I listening to? Who am I watching? Who am I reading? And, and, and what are they telling me? And how does that align with what God tells me in his word? And then last, finally, how does Paul's farewell point me to a greater hope in Christ? So we looked at Paul's example. We looked at Paul's endurance. We looked at Paul's exhortation. But Paul would say, hey, I want you to look at Jesus, right? He's, he's not making much of himself 
Everything Paul does points to Jesus. And so how does this story of the farewell of Paul, uh, you know, this, this final sort of encouragement and, and, um, and, and goodbye to the church at Ephesus, how does that point me to a greater hope in Christ? Because it's the greater hope in Christ that sustained Paul through all of these things. So how does his farewell point me to a greater hope in Jesus? Okay, I'll leave these up on the screen for you. Uh, I'm going to pray. And then if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be welcomed down these aisles to these uh, communion tables. There's two stations on each table. There are uh, gluten-free wafers uh, on the plates, um, wine and juice in each cup, so you can do whatever your conscience allows. There are some little individual serve cups in the middle there if you just want to take those elements back to your seat. But communion is, is a thing that we do as Christians to reflect on, to remember, uh, to be grateful for, to celebrate the fact that Jesus would come for us, that he would die, he would endure pain and suffering on our behalf, that, that in the cross his body was broken and his blood was spilled so that we could be welcomed into his fold as his beloved sheep, that we could have forgiveness and wholeness and forgiveness of sins. And so you come to these tables in remembrance and thanksgiving, um, in repentance if necessary. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just stay seated for this time. No one will judge you for that. But this is for those who belong to Christ. Uh, As you make your way back to your seats, there are black boxes kind of under the windows there. If you are a regular and want to give an offering, you can do that. If you're new here and want to be known, connect cards. Uh, can go in those boxes and then prayer requests as well, which is the back side of that connect card. Uh, and then Ryan's going to come back and lead us in a couple songs. We'll get out of here, okay? All right, Father, thank you so much um, for hard, good words. Thank you so much for a passage like this that just is honest and real. And I, I feel it probably resonates with so many of us as we go through different circumstances in life that um, I pray that you would help us become a people Um, who are shaped by the example of Christ and of Paul and who surrender ourselves to you and and, and that you transform us to be people who set an example for others in faith, in purity, in love, in in word. That the conviction we feel over those gaps wouldn't lead us to shame, but we'd be reminded those are places of grace to step in and to bring transformation. I pray that, Lord, you would help us to endure. Many of us are in deep pain right now. Wounds we haven't quite healed from. Current struggles that we are enduring. Would you help us to endure? Buoy us, Lord, by your spirit. Give us a sustaining joy in Christ that no matter what comes our way, you are with us and you are for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would heed the exhortation of Paul to hold fast to your word. That it is our only source of ultimate truth And it brings transformation to us. And so help us, Lord, to to just cling to you in this moment. Um, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified as we respond to you through song and and giving and communion and prayer. Be glorified in this place and give us a sense of joy in your presence now, I pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.